we've reached the point where more traditional financial institutions either have explicitly launched a product in the digital asset space or have made some sort of announcement or leak that they're doing something in the digital asset space than those that have not. Like, I think it would be quicker to list TradFi institutions that haven't touched crypto or don't want anything to do with it than those that have. That took place over the past, arguably, like 18 months, which was priced down, sentiment poor, but like people are still looking at the space. Hey, listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your support helps us reach more listeners and bring you more exciting content in the future. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. Let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing well. It's uh, it's nice to have you both back after last week. Yeah, it's good to be back. The time change, I'm not good at it. I don't do it too often and it throws me off. I have to calculate when I communicate back with people on the East Coast, when I'm on the West Coast, and then you have to deal with losing hours when you get back. Yeah, yeah. Your, your watch says one time, but your, com- or your phone says one time, and then your computer says something totally different. Yes. <laughs> I will so, say... I. I slept like a baby every single night because I would, I would go to bed by like 8, 830 because in reality, my body thought it was like 1130. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for those of you who didn't listen last week, um, Jack and Jason were in California for the Future Proof Conference. Um, so how was the how was the event, guys? It was good. Um, well attended. I, I think they had somewhere close to 4000 people. Um, it was a completely outdoor uh, conference, so that was interesting and different. A um, little bit of rain one morning, but um, generally it was pretty well attended. Yeah, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. Every time I go to a a TradFi event, like representing obviously a, a crypto brand, I always like to count or make note of the number of times that a like a traditional for at this conference it was mostly investment advisors the number of people that will like scoff at you or like think you're crazy for working in crypto and there was only one person <laughs> that told me that walked by me uh and said you don't want to know my thoughts on crypto and i said hey we've heard it all and they kept walking and uh that was the only person <laughs> that was like outright complete skeptic and didn't want to hear anything we had to say so the numbers are improving if uh my anecdotal data counts for anything yeah and it's it's an interesting uh reaction for someone attending an event named called future proof (laughs) (laughs) yes it it was an interesting thing for me because you know future proof wasn't really so much i mean there's definitely elements of technology but the the target audience were um 
advisors. So the actual event was billed as the world's largest wealth festival. So you had a lot of uh, registered investment advisors or wealth advisors who were looking for solutions and ideas on how to help um, give their clients a better experience. So it was an interesting mix, um, skewed pretty, uh, I say relatively young. Uh, my understanding is a lot of people might have been advisors in a big shop who had broken away. And um, But I, I think just the fact that they even wanted to talk crypto. I mean, I had a lot of people come up to me like, oh, hey, uh, what's Fidelity doing here? And lots of questions. A uh, bunch of people came up and expressed uh, their appreciation for the fact that they could now um, do more through Fidelity. Um, but I, you know, it's interesting to have an event on a beach where all your meals are coming from food trucks. You've got stages that are for you know three different stages lots of people talking lots of different events mm -hmm. um, but energy wise it was it was pretty high it was interesting because uh i think that was more heavily attended than it was in the the previous year and uh if i, I we sent some folks on our team to permissionless which of course the the crypto conference put on by bankless and blockworks and it's usually you know one of the bigger events every single year and i think that was pretty sparsely attended compared to prior years so it gives you some uh analogs in terms of where we are in uh the crypto in the market, market. Yeah, yeah 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 um all right let's um let's jump in we don't we don't have parth today um so we we can just jump right into the news so a, a few stories that i think we wanted to to talk about so the first was um, around a new order that was approved um, for FTX to start liquidating assets that it has on its balance sheet. Uh, so to kind of dive into that, maybe talk a little bit about what it means for the market. Um, and then um, an interesting announcement coming out of Deutsche Bank around a new partnership with a, a digital asset provider um, to bring custody and, and eventually tokenization services um, to Deutsche and its clients. So, you know, we've talked a lot about asset tokenization, I think, um, you know, kind of want to dive a little bit into that. And then um, Coinbase um, saying that they're going to uh, start to roll out integration with the Bitcoin Lightning Network, um, which I think is really cool. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about kind of the, the state of Lightning and, um, you know, what, you know, adoption looks like, both from an individual retail perspective as well as an institutional perspective. Um, yeah. So, uh, Jack, do you want to kick us off maybe and, and we uh, just provide a little bit of an overview around the... Um, the FTX um, news? Yeah, definitely. So about a month ago, a little over a month ago, I think, uh, the defunct crypto exchange FTX requested approval from a Delaware judge to start selling their crypto assets. Uh, I believe they were planning on using Galaxy Digital, the, the crypto native company, to help them facilitate uh, sales and the ability to hedge some of the more liquid assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, and also even stake crypto assets. And just this past week, that court basically allowed this motion to go forward where FTX is now going to be in the process of selling what is believed to be 3.4 billion worth of crypto assets. Um, the plan at the moment anyways, is to allow for the sale of up to $100 million worth of most of the tokens, um, as well as the ability to hedge their Bitcoin and ETH exposure at any time. So $100 million each week, sorry, uh, if I didn't specify that. Uh, if we look like their their holdings, they have disclosed. They have $3.4 billion. Remember, crypto's market cap is 
five hundred billion ish. I'm rounding. Haven't looked in the past week or two. Uh, and in terms of what do they actually hold? Well, we know they hold a lot of Solana, and that actually makes up almost a third of those assets. I think actually over a third. So over a billion dollars worth of the Sol token is going to be sold at some point over the next, you know, call it quarter or so, if they move forward uh, with this, you know, this plan to to sell these tokens. So in terms of like sell pressure on specific ecosystems, we know that Solana is one ecosystem that will, you know, sort of face some marginal selling pressure from the result of these liquidations. And then uh, other holdings, like if we look at their top three, it's Solana around a billion dollars, uh, Bitcoin around $560 million worth of Bitcoin, and then around $160 million worth of ETH. And so over the coming months, there will be some sort of ongoing sale of these tokens, as well as the ability to hedge their Bitcoin and ETH exposure and then you know, offload those as well as they transition from crypto holdings liquidating into U.S. dollars to be able to you know pay out their their creditors. And Jack, one one thing that we may want to look back on is, I think the first few weeks or phase one, they were talking about a limit of uh, up to fifty million per week. I think the hundred million limit comes in after the first initial phase. So, um, yeah, sorry, that's verify that. No, that that's great. I just wanted to put it out there because I think it, there may be multiple phases in which the caps get raised. Uh, I'm assuming well, that, I, yeah, and there would, I mean, just from a from a market standpoint, there would need to be right because I would imagine it's going to take quite some time. I mean, I think the five hundred million dollar Bitcoin uh, position versus Bitcoin market cap, like you know, isn't terribly material, right? Um, but when you think about a billion dollar Solana position versus, I think, um, you know, I think it's- I think it's only an $8 billion like eight market point, Yeah, eight point, yeah, $8 billion project, right? Like that's obviously way more material and it's gonna take a much longer, um, much longer time to unwind. I think Solana is up, you know, when we think about movers in the last week, I think it's up almost like 12%, 13%, which is significant. Um, you know, at least versus the other, uh, you know, larger cap uh, digital assets. So, um, you know, I, I, to your point, Jack, I would expect we'll see some some sell pressure. But um, is it possible that the market is thinking that this is a positive? Like, I, I know two weeks ago or three weeks ago now, we talked a little bit about kind of Solana post FTX um, and kind of what that's going to look like. Do we think that this is maybe a step in that direction towards the project maybe decoupling its uh you know image from from what was pretty heavily intertwined with ftx yeah i i mean i would think so as their ownership reduces over time right i mean i i would imagine that solana wants very little association with ftx at the moment anyways aside from the fact that they own their tokens right and so now this sale uh of course was probably going to happen at some point anyways so this well, it will happen. And so there's the ecosystem specific risk of something like Solano when you mention relative to the outstanding float. You know, there's a lot of tokens held here that are at least planned to be liquidated. But at the same time, they're working with, you know, Galaxy and the, the people that have taken over FTX seem competent. So I'm sure it's not going to be like a, you know, billion dollar market order, right? It's a slow process over time. As you mentioned, the price is, is up over the past week, not down. But like, I think if you combine the fact that, hey, we have $3 billion worth of crypto being liquidated here. Uh, we have Silk Road Bitcoin that was seized uh, by the government that's being sold over the course of this year. There's still 30,000 Bitcoin, according to my calculations, that has to be sold th between now and the end of the year. 
Uh, and then there's also the potential for some of the Mt. Gox distributions to take place. I think they'll probably get kicked out into next year. But like you kind of add these things up and it's like uh, past failures or seizures of tokens that are being liquidated. And so there's just sort of this you know, marginal sell pressure to some degree. And then the, the outlier on the other side uh, of the ledger would just be we don't know what's going to happen as far as ETF approvals, right? And we're like completely speculating, but given the fact that the SEC has delayed on all of the applications thus far, like most are assuming that they will at least delay into next year. And then in January of next year would be like the earliest that they would have to make a decision on one of these most recent filings, the ARC 21 shares. That would be sort of the like positive new demand catalyst uh, on the positive side of the ledger. Meanwhile, you kind of have this slow drip of liquidations of sort of prior failures or seized Bitcoin and, and tokens that are being sold into the market as we kind of get around to the turn of the year. Yeah, it's, it's a great way to look at it, Jack, because I, I love the fact that you're looking at both sides of that that um, demand and supply factor. You know, we do have the halving coming up also, which could yep. play a role in that. But I think ultimately the thing to keep in mind is, particularly in the case of the FTX liquidators, they're trying to ensure that they can get as high of a return as they can for those creditors who have had their value trapped for, for quite some time now. So they're not in a rush to liquidate. They're, they actually want to make sure that they can do the best job possible for those creditors. Extract as much value. Yeah, not only are they not in a rush, they got approval to stake some of these assets. Right. Which is which is kind of unique and interesting that like they're trying to sell assets, but then they get approval to stake some of these proof of stake assets. You'd have to imagine that that billion dollars worth of Solana, if there's a yield there, they probably want to get that yield and make sure like I don't th I don't think that Sol has uh, a positive real yield, but you get diluted if you're not staking. And so that's probably part of the reason why they wanted to get approval is, hey, we can't sell a billion dollars worth of Solana overnight. So can we stake a portion of these assets while we're sort of slowly dripping uh, the tokens that we are selling into the market? I would think that's kind of the thought process there. Well, and, and even for ETH, right? I mean, that yeah. there's, there's a revenue opportunity there. So, and Jason, I, I'm not super familiar with this, but when there's a large cash position, my assumption would be is that it's in some sort of yield generating investment, right? And versus just sitting in, in cash when you're talking about large liquidations like this. I, I would imagine that's the process. I mean, when you, when you think about money going into, say, some type of a fund or out of a fund, you want to protect against dilution. So right. if you were going in, you might buy futures to get your market exposure. But in this case, they're coming out. So um, they, they don't necessarily want to continue to retain the market exposure, but they do want to maximize what they distribute back to those creditors. So I would expect, you know, you have um, money funds yielding close to, if not over 5%. So uh, point from cash to distribution, I'd expect they're picking up additional income through that, that type of mechanism. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let's move on. Um, so Deutsche Bank last week announcing a new partnership with um, a company called Taurus. Um, which is a Swiss-based company um, to bring, um, you know, first digital asset custody to its customers. Um, but I think it's kind of opening the door to potentially a larger partnership down the line um, where Taurus could provide, you know, other asset issuance or tokenization services, as well as, um, you know, some secondary marketplace services. I think right now the company um, independently operates secondary market for, for um, you know, quote unquote tokenized assets, um, you know, that are, you know, private placements and other 
types of alts. Um, I think this is interesting um, because, you know, it, it not only does it continue the trend of, you know, TradFi institutions adopting digital assets, um, but it's kind of, you know, underlies like some of the, 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 the two key strategies that I think we've um, we've seen from most companies, which is you can either build out a team in-house um, and and really build these capabilities from the ground up um, yourself, or you can partner with a third party that's maybe more established and kind of brings that expertise and 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 integrates those services you know on your behalf, but you're you're not necessarily developing them. And and in Deutsche's case, it, it seems to be the latter. Um, you know, obviously the company over the last several years, I would say, has had its share of um, um, controversy, right? Um, and so I think this is also an interesting play in that it's, you know, a, a step towards diversifying revenue, right? Um, and, and creating a new revenue stream for the company. But curious to uh, to get your thoughts. Obviously, we've talked a lot about, you know, tokenization as well, um, in addition to institutional adoption. And I think the, the market opportunity there is is you know, pretty significant and we're starting to see that come through and, and how um, institutions are, are developing their strategies around it. Yeah, I, well, I, as you said, I'm, Deutsche Bank is, it's a large financial institution. It's managing over a trillion dollars. I think something along the lines of 1.4 trillion USD on behalf of their customers. And they're Germany's largest bank. And when you, when you sort of- And they've been around since 1870. I, I looked yeah. it up because I was curious, you know, that they're, they're not new to this game. <laughs> Maybe well, they're new to digital assets, but they're not new to uh, banking. <laughs> but they, they've also experienced a lot of, uh, I'll say, volatility in the past several years too. And when you think right. about that longevity and wanting to make sure that they have the opportunity to continue to um, expand their product offering, looking at Europe more broadly, you have this regulatory environment with the markets and crypto assets and other players in the European space working on tokenization. It, it would make sense that a company like Deutsche would explore that as as keeping up capabilities with with peer groups. And, you know, the fact that they're partnering with a Swiss firm, Taurus, is interesting because we know when we've talked about before that the Swiss regulatory environment is favorable towards treating digital assets like, uh, you know, property rights are favorable for digital assets. And, you know, thinking about the um, the ability to represent uh, assets as tokens and then program in those tokens and have the benefits that we typically associate with tokenization around um, transparency, programmability, potential for reducing and minimum investments. Um, it, it seems like a, a, a good approach. I did a little bit of digging into Taurus also just to find out more about them. So, you know, they're offering services right now, issuance, custody, and trading of um, different digital assets and private assets for, they say, over 25 institutional clients. Uh, what I found also was interesting is they recently, I think a couple months ago, back in June, announced an integration with Polygon. So when you're thinking about transacting this environment, there's the access to the assets and the execution facilities, but there's also the, um, the all-in cost of transacting. So it seems that they're helping to try and find uh, lower cost opportunities for their clients to transact and polygon is, is one of those choices yeah i think it's an interesting point around the the you know regulatory regime right because over I, earlier this year 
Um, they had, you know, applied for the, you know, a digital license custody license through Bafin. Um, obviously, you have the broader kind of regulatory framework within Europe, and I think this is a very tangible example of, you know, when there's regulatory clarity, it enables, you know, companies small and large to build and innovate in this space. Um, and I would say, in the absence of that type of regulatory clarity, it's likely that you would not have seen, you know, such a large player dive in with both feet, um, you know, like like we've seen in this case. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, net positive, right. For both on the digital assets side, as well as, you know, the asset tokenization side. And, um, it'll be interesting to watch, you know, how they, you know, how they continue to prioritize new offerings for their clients. But I think it's very clear based on their, um, you know, at least what they've said in their press release around this, that they're starting to see client demand and kind of, there's a broader recognition that, you know, market. Uh, market conditions are changing and and the appetite from their clients for this is is kind of changing with that i almost think we've we've reached the point where more traditional financial institutions either have explicitly launched a product in the digital asset space or have made some sort of announcement or leak that they're doing something in the digital asset space than those that have not like i think it would be quicker to list TradFi institutions that haven't touched crypto or don't want anything to do with it than those that have. And that that took place over the past arguably like 18 months, which was priced down, sentiment poor, but like yeah, people are still looking at the space. Like the nothing Yeah, no, I, the it's a really good point. That would be like a that would be like a good deep dive. Maybe we can table that for a future episode where we kind of take a look at what you know firms have either publicly announced or has been reported that they're looking at and kind of where they're at in terms of their uh, their execution of those plans. And, and it is kind of funny to I, I said I was going to mention this earlier, but you know we are literally just about fifteen years from when the Lehman bankruptcy occurred that triggered the global financial crisis. And when we think about that being a catalyst that brought the Bitcoin white paper forward and then all of the different technological advancements using distributed ledger technology and, and digital assets that have come since, um, I was posed a question at that conference the other day um, along these lines. And I, I did just what you were talking about now, talking about how uh, many of the traditional financial services players, including many of the large global custodians, they are exploring this technology for various reasons. Um, and I say this technology, the broad bucket of digital ledger technology, uh, independent of the actual digital assets, because we know in some cases they're focusing on permission chains over public chains. But when I was doing a little bit of background reading for this Deutsche story, um, I found that they had produced a three-part series on um, blockchain and digital assets um, earlier this year in January. And it says that... Uh, prior to the releasing those reports that um, Deutsche Bank had said that uh, crypto has potential to replace cash in the next decade and that the current fiat system looks quote unquote fragile according to that report from Deutsche Bank back in December timeframe. So that's an interesting take from a bank that's been around for well over a hundred years. I personally think that this is you know one party reporting on what they believe to be the case, but Fact of the matter is pretty much all the large players are exploring the technology, looking at how the world is changing. And if you're not looking to innovate in this space, then you really run the risk of becoming further and further uh, a, a trailer. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
Um, all right. Um, and in the interest of time, I think let's let's move on. Um, so another interesting story that we saw, you know, out of Coinbase last week, um, that they're going to be starting to, you know, integrate um, the Bitcoin Lightning Network into their services. Um, Jack, any any thoughts here, kind of to get us going? Um, I know I have, I have a few. Yeah, I think this has been something that. Uh the average Bitcoiner has been asking for from Coinbase for a long time, which is to date, at least over recent years, it seems that Coinbase's focus has been on supporting other tokens. And that has been to the dismay of the average Bitcoiner uh, who wants you know capabilities like Lightning when the CEO from Coinbase, Brian Armstrong, will make comments around you know, cheaper, faster payments than Bitcoin offers, but then Bitcoiners will say, well, hey, you didn't even integrate Lightning. And now it's gotten to the point where Coinbase you know, finally kind of paid attention. Uh, and the the plan now, uh, according to a, a tweet storm from uh, Brian himself, said that they're planning on integrating it. It's going to take some time. We've seen other large exchanges in the US integrate like Kraken, for instance, um, but Coinbase was sort of one of the big ones that that had not to date. I think the, the biggest piece here is um, from like a profitability perspective, I don't know that there's a huge incentive for someone like Coinbase to support it uh, at the moment anyways. So I think it could be a big stepping stone for people to be able to use it because it's it's cheaper and faster payments. So small users will benefit the most, but small users aren't the most monetizable users for a public company that's you know trying to you know, charge fees for using services, right? Building products that large investors can uh, <laughs> you know, can use is yeah. tends to be more profitable, right? So I think that's like part of the story here is just like it's it's uh, good to see. Uh, the embrace, but still at the moment, um, you know, the Lightning Network is more uh, more experimental usage and small scale payments than it is like scalable technology for everyone on Coinbase. You kind of hit the nail on the head with that, right? Because when I think about the Lightning Network, I still view it as largely in beta. Um, yeah. And I think it actually technically is still in beta, right? And so um, the narrative has always been, you know, only transact and what you're willing to what you're willing to lose, right? Because there's still definitely some some um, wrinkles that they're trying to work out. Um, and I, you know, I, I also think it's been interesting because we, to your point, we've seen other you know, exchanges, wallet providers, you know, effectively institutionals, um, you know, adopting, adopting lightning, um, which I'm not exactly sure that that was kind of the initial super use case, right? The idea was go going to be, you know, micropayments for day-to-day -day transactions, you know, and, you know, effectively free using effectively free rails. Right. Um, and, and that at least you know, in my opinion, has not really materialized. Um, and, and now you're actually starting to see, you know, the opposite where it's not, you know, the the mom and pop or, or the retail, um, you know, individual that's using the network. It's it's these institutions that are at least providing connectivity to. Right. Because, um, you know, there's there is a significant amount of technical um, an operational complexity associated associated with integrating, whether you're standing up your own node um, and then building, you know, channels with other nodes in the network and having appropriate liquidity within those channels, right? Like the way that the network works is not necessarily easy, I guess, is the point um, to adopt. Um, and so 
maybe it is that you kind of have institutions sitting on top of of these rails and providing access that way rather than people um, interfacing with the network directly which is really kind of how i had initially envisioned it when i first started you know digging into lightning several years ago yeah and it's funny because i as you were talking about the the scale of, of it and i still also think of it as um earlier in its maturity life cycle I was looking up, there's currently about 4,806 Bitcoin of capacity. So roughly $131 million worth of channel capacity. And that's if you were connected to every channel. So it's still a relatively small payment network, but um, the channel count they have is just under 69,000 uh, channels. So quite an interesting growth to get to this point, but certainly not uh, not nearly the capacity that you see on the, on the main chains. Yeah, th yeah. I think... Uh, what, one thing will, that will be interesting to see here is like step one is probably just enable it for users to be able to send their funds in or out. But I, and I don't know that that's like huge for like lightning necessary for like increased usage. Like sure. Some users on the margin will use it as like an easy way to off ramp your lightning Bitcoin. Cause it's like not easy to do. I have stuff in a lightning wallet and it just sits there because i don't right no that's, what I'm, know that's how to, kind like, of what I'm saying right, it, right? it's yeah. like too small to to worry about the issue or whatever but if coinbase had it integrated easily then yeah like that's a, a quick easy solution for that um but like would they potentially consider once they have the capabilities like integrating it into like payments and like coinbase has a farther reach than some of these you know the smaller startups in the lightning space so well yeah that be, you know meaningful well, I, I make i sort of wonder would you end up with sort of that permissioned version through that like there's a there's a bitfinex lightning network right yep. and then there's also liquid sidechain so other ways that people have created similar capabilities but i, well, I don't there's know various implementations of lightning itself too yeah exactly you know? Well, this once probably, this is this will be this should be its own deep dive. But yeah, I mean, I isn't mean, this part of the issue for Lightning technically? Is like the largest users on the network. There's like you know, there's a handful of large node operators with large channels, and Coinbase will likely become one of them, right? Kraken is one of them. Rivers one of them, and then everybody's using infrastructure that's like centralized to that one company so it basically becomes like a permissioned chain lightning almost right with like liquidity issues and constraints and whatnot yeah. if everyone's not like running their own lightning node and using their own wallet because everyone's using yeah. hosted infrastructure which is totally well, fine a pretty, a pretty high different. degree of centralization right now yeah. for something that was really you know intended to be highly decentralized Maybe the end product is just different than what it was originally intended to be or imagined. Right. That's that's what I'm kind of thinking work. too. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we think about network adoption, um, you know, in the near term, this is, you know, net positive for the Lightning Network, right? Um, and perhaps maybe longer term positive benefits for, um, you know, investors. I just don't necessarily know that I see you know, a, to your point, Jack, like a huge impact in the near term. Yeah, because and even if we're like drawing this logic out far enough, couldn't you just say scrap lightning, just create your own little like permissioned infrastructure on top of Bitcoin? That's basically what you're doing if lightning is just yeah. like 10 large node operators with channels and then there's all this added confusion and complexity. It's like, hey, let's just get 10 or 20 of the largest Bitcoin enterprises to interface with each other, somehow make it somewhat transparent, like, you know, Lightning's able to do that. Yeah. And I, you know, 
I, I agree know. with that, but I also feel like there are companies out there looking to make Lightning more accessible for individual investors, you know, for individual, I keep saying investors, users, right? Like, you know, the Casa Node, for example, um, that's a relatively like user, you know, user-friendly experience. Um, and there are others, right? And I, so I, I think it's going to be a matter of balance moving forward. Clearly the, the institutions are going to, are going to, I, I think dominate in the short term, but maybe longer term, we we start to see an opportunity for for more decentralization. But but I don't know. It, it's hard. It's really hard to tell. It's, it's going to be market behavior. You know, very different implementations, but it's similar to what ETH deals with with their sequencers. It's like okay, yeah. well, it's just it, it ends up being like quasi permissioned, permissionless, but like centralized in places. And the same thing yeah. with Lightning at at current scale of any kind. So yeah, be yeah. yeah, no, it's definitely another area of really, uh, to watch kind of on a longer term basis. Um, but yeah, no, this was a, this was a great discussion. Really appreciate, um, all of your contributions today. Um, and thank you uh, everyone else for joining and uh, we'll see you next week. Have a good rest of your week. Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would, or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.